This is the Dividend Health Checkup. Hi, I'm DGI Guy, and this is the Dividend Health Checkup. Along with Dr. Dividend, we are bringing you a weekly show that is dedicated to learning as much as we possibly can from investors who are primarily focused in the dividend investing space. One of the great tools that we all use in investing is historical data. We take a look back at previous prices, previous quarterly performance, and previous products of the company that we're interested in, and we try and decide if that same performance is going to continue in the future, get better, get worse. And then we often look at competitors to see if those folks are doing something different that could impact the opinions that we have as investors going forward about the potential investment we're looking at. And in that, there's one area that is often overlooked when we're looking at historical data, and that's context. So for the article of the week this week, I've chosen a great work from DividendGrowthInvestor.com and his article titled, Interest Rates Affect Stock Valuations, is a great introduction to the topic of the context of historical data. So he calls out pundits uh, for saying, you know, all stocks are overvalued today. And when you think about that in the historical context, the question is, well, even if stocks are overvalued today, what's the alternative? So in today's low interest rate bond environment, there's not a really good alternative, and that's going to lead folks to buying up stocks and bidding up the prices. From that, when today's data becomes historical data, and in this article, that's more the context, is how do you remember that and how do you view some of these outside activities and how they impacted the market relative to creating the historic data. So it's an interesting read. I won't go any farther than that, but I'll just say if you have a moment, check it out. And as always, remember the historical context when we're looking at historical data. So let's move on now. We'll do part two with Steve Rasher. And here's Dr. Dividend. Getting back to your portfolio. Sure. Uh, what is your specific goal with your portfolio? Well, I, I have a couple of uh, goals with my portfolio. Uh, one, as I said earlier, was uh, when I decided to focus on dividends is to create that cash flow, uh, that constant cash flow every year uh, as an element of uh, our income. And But I also want to try to preserve uh, as best as I can uh, our capital and maybe even have it appreciate uh, slightly over time. Uh, you know, capital appreciation, I think, is a secondary goal. Uh, maintaining the dividends um, and, 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 and ensuring that that, that cash flows there uh, uh, is, is the primary goal. You know, you got a pension with uh, by working for United. Uh, does your wife have a pension as well? Well, she's she was self she's still self employed. She um, she has a SEP, uh, which is more like a four hundred one k that she has, uh, and uh, she's winding down. When she turned sixty six, you know, when I turned sixty six, I decided to take my social security. She turned sixty six last year. Uh, she's not taking hers, but she elected to take her spousal fifty percent of mine. So we have that coming in. Uh, in a in a sense. 
we have the Social Security and we have my pension, which uh, in my mind of thinking is the equivalent of the cash flow from fixed income investments, if you will. So Steve, with with regards to you have your pension and you have Social Security coming in and you look at your overall annual expenses, I, my guess is, is that Social Security plus your pension is not fully satisfying the current standard of living that you want. So how much on a percentage basis, how much of a either gap is your dividend income producing or how much of a buffer above and beyond your current annual expenses is that dividend portfolio helping with? So I would say that the social security plus the pension right now is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 45% of uh, cash flow. And then I would say the dividends generate about 50, between 55 and 60% of cash flow. Now, our normal expenses, I think we're easily covering that. But then, you know, with our lifestyle and everything else, you know, we do take a cruise a year, we rent a summer house a year. And so it becomes, everything gets covered. I may have to tap into uh, capital on a rare occasion. But if that's one or two percent uh, of capital a year, I'd be surprised if it's even that high. All right. So, so it's covering, but not the biggest of buffers. No, but I, it's still a work in process, if you will. Okay. Because I still have, um, well, first of all, <laughs> we've got my wife's SEP, which is strictly in the S&P 500. And I've still got a fair amount of money in an S&P 500 and a capital growth fund and a, and a, and a uh, mid-cap fund. And really, those are the funds that I'm converting to buying more dividend stocks, or if we need a little excess cash, then that's what I tap. So, you know, we've got uh, a lot of capital, if you will, that, that are not generating dividends that may or may not in the future. And of course, by the time, you know, when I hit 70 and a half in about uh, three years, and then my wife does that in four years, we're going to have to start taking some RMDs, which uh, will create involuntary cash flow, if you will. <laughs> okay. And plus at that point, uh, because of the delayed benefit on your wife, she'll convert from a spousal benefit to her social security with distribution at the age of 70. Right. Which will at that point actually exceed mine. Okay. Just a, just a little, uh, social security background. She did well enough with her business such that the, difference between the age 66 benefit and the age 70 benefit for each of us was about the same. But my benefit at age 66 was higher than her benefit at age 66. And so I concluded, and since it was going to take me till age 82 to catch up for me to even wait till age 70, uh, I decided to take my benefit at age 66. And then when she takes hers at age 70, the delta will be the same, but her benefit now will be be higher than mine. Right. So we max. So we we looked at the math and maximized our benefit on a collective basis. Okay. So so really, even though you might be 
covering costs right now, you've got a couple things in the works that you can increase the uh, the cash flow uh, looking forward. That that shouldn't be an issue. Got it. Sure. Got it. And and, and in one sense, we got a quite a bit in the, I guess in the piggy bank. <laughs> yeah. So fantastic. How many? Just looking st- specifically at your dividend portfolio, and not the other money that you mentioned in the S and P fund and a mid cap fund and things like that. Sure. How many position? How many positions do you hold? Uh, probably too many. I would say probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I got to think about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's more in the sixty to seventy range at least. But then again, like I've said before, on in some comments, you know. This is fun to me. This is what I do. This is my new job, and I, and and so I just I just love studying businesses. Getting back to the opening of the, of the conversation, where one of the why did I get out of private practice into an in-house position? Because I'm really I like to say now I'm really a finance guy in legal in lawyers' clothes. Well, yeah, it's um, I, I'm thinking of a joke and I just don't have one, but there's got to be one right. in there. That's right. <laughs> And uh, in terms of the number with all of those positions that you hold, do you break it down and try and keep uh, certain parameters by industry, or what other benchmark do you use? Well, I, I, I wish I could say that I have some strict guidelines, but I do try to keep a balanced. I try to keep certain sizes of positions for each company in terms of what my initial investment is. Uh, that's That's one thing. But I keep an eye on the bigger picture of what industries I'm in and what kind of uh, risk profile am I taking. Uh, so, you know, I, I I have a small, on a relative basis, a small smattering of MLPs, all midstream. Uh, I have a fair number of real estate investment trusts, all equity REITs, no, no, no mortgage REITs. Uh, I have a fair number of business development companies because uh, I actually understand that business pretty well. Uh, and they're really the the new banks for the uh, small to mid tier company because of the restrictions placed on the larger banks, and so I see that as a real opportunity. I have a fair number of industrials, a good number of uh, consumer staples, a small number of retail like like a Walgreens, and um, uh, a fair number of industrial companies, and then a good number of tech. Uh, most of them, although not all, what I would call old line tech, and the Cisco's of the world, the Intel's, uh, Qualcomm, Microsoft, analog devices, linear technology, uh, 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 Maxim integrated. One that is not old tech uh, is Nvidia, but they all pay dividends, and uh, they're what they what I what I like to refer to. And I, I don't I know I heard it from somewhere, but I don't remember. But I call them my digital utilities, in that they're well-established companies. They're cash cows. Uh, they still have a modicum of growth, and they pay a nice dividend. So, Steve, amongst your companies, what are some of the key metrics that you focus on when uh, researching a stock? I, I kind of do a, a, an overview first. I try to understand what the business is and what the business model is. Uh, I, I think you got to understand what the business is. Because I, I don't know how you can really evaluate it unless you understand the business. So that that's the first thing, really. Uh, I then do uh, I look I look at the balance sheet uh, and I look at the cash flow statements that are available. I will do a 
I, I try to take a look at the website in terms of getting to know to see who the people on the board of directors are and who the management is and what their backgrounds are and how that fits into uh, with with the business model. I, uh, I I then will if the business then still interests me, I will then do uh, sort of a, an, an old school uh, uh, fundamental analysis based upon earnings per share uh, and, and to see. Uh, how it how its values, its current sale, its current price stands up to what I I believe the intrinsic value is. And which uh, are there specific resources or websites that you like to use to research stocks? Well, like I said, I go to the I go to the company's website quite a bit. I uh, use uh, two brokerage houses online, uh, Schwab and Fidelity, and I use their resources, both of their resources. As silly as it sounds, with Yahoo, although a lot of their data is sometimes suspect, the one thing I do like about it is if you go to the particular stock and the, and the analyst estimates, because it is a, is sort of a, a composite, uh, I find that very useful. And so I use that as a starting point for some of the data and for some of my analysis. I, I, I think I bring all those, use all those sources. Uh, and then come to uh, my own conclusion. Okay. And so at, at this current time, are there any stocks that look interesting to you? Well, a lot of stuff is, from my perspective, is uh, a little stretched. Although I think um, some of the pharmaceuticals and biotechs, because they've been beaten down so much, uh, I think uh, from from a long-term uh, perspective or are attractive. Uh, uh, you know, Gilead certainly has a number of its uh, headwinds short term, but I think long term, uh, it, it's 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 uh, got a good, uh, I think, a good future ahead of it, and it and it's certainly you know, in in that from that perspective, reasonably priced. Even Amgen, on a relative basis, it looks pretty good, and so does AbbVie, V, uh, and as well as Pfizer. I mean, I think Pfizer. If they get this deal done and and they, and they actually are able to develop their pipeline uh, on both sides, uh, that could be a, a a surprise. It's not badly priced at all right now. Uh, those are three. I mean, another little company I like that has come down, which doesn't get a lot of play, is called Orchids Paper Products. Its symbol is TIS for tissue. Uh, they're a, a, a very small company out of Oklahoma. But they they produce uh, what are called parent rolls of paper, but they also then also have uh, uh, mills to produce lower grade toilet paper, which is <laughs> uh, sold in a lot of the dollar stores and used in in a, in a lot of industrial uh, sites because they're not interested in, in the high Charmin type of quality paper. But uh, they've uh, they've got outlets now on the West Coast and. They're opening up a plant on the East Coast, and their capital capital expenditures is coming to a close in the next 12 months, and they pay a decent dividend. And uh, I, I like their management a lot. They're a bunch of finance guys. Uh, so that's an interesting one. And you mentioned that your two brokerage houses that you use are Schwab and Fidelity. Is there Why specifically do you use them, or what specifically do you enjoy about using those two? I started out with Schwab back in the 90s and fidelity that relationship kind of developed because at united all our 401k plans etc were through fidelity and 
that was just sort of a natural transition when I started converting the 401k money in, in, a, in a Roth uh, IRA. But I, I've come to learn how to use a lot of the tools that they have available. And it's like anything else, you know, you, you, you start using something, you're used to it, and you figure out how to use it, and it sort of becomes uh, second nature, so to speak. It's, it's what, you're com- what you're comfortable with. And, you know, they both have other analyst opinions on there. They have various uh, chart uh, capabilities, et cetera, uh, that you can use. Got it. So now, now we come to the sobering part of the interview and mistakes that we've made. Ah. So <laughs> what are uh, some of those learning experiences that you've gone through in the past that uh, made you refocus and say, boy, I'm not going to do that again? Early on when I was trying to restructure the portfolio into a dividend-generating portfolio, like a lot of people that first start out into dividend investing, you, you focus more on yield than on the fundamentals. And so you know, I made some mistakes in getting into initially some mortgage REITs and some other things that were uh, not stable. And you, you learn those lessons the hard way and early. So that that's one thing where you can't chase yield. It's nice to have a good yield, but it's got to be sustainable. And so that's where it gets back to becoming a, a fundamental uh, analysis again. Uh, so that you know that that's um, uh, one mistake. I'm not a trader by nature, and therefore I'm a, a reluctant seller. Uh, and one of the reasons is because I learned that some of the biggest mistakes I, I made were selling too early. Uh, you know, I I had bought Amgen back in the '90s, and it split a couple times, and I had a nice profit and. Uh, I didn't take a careful enough look at their pipeline, and so I, so you know, I had a basis of 40, and I sold it at let's say 65 or 70, way too early. And if I had been patient, I would I would still have the stock, and it would now be a 145 or 150 dollar stock. So it, it, it's it's that type of thing. I actually now own Amgen because I was patient and got in in in, in the low to mid four, uh, 140s. Because I think it has a future, but that, that you know, and that's just one poster child. Because that's not the only time I've sold too early. Well, that brings up a good point in terms of with regards to selling stocks. So let's just say that you did keep it through all of these years. Which, if you bought in the mid '90s, that's 20 years later. Yeah, that would be, I'm just guessing, an overwhelming percentage of your portfolio. And do you have selling guidelines on trying to keep that in check or you would just build around that in hopes that it still wasn't an oversized position? I guess let me, the answer is I do focus on whether any one position is such a large portion of my portfolio. Fortunately, the way I've got things constructed now with so many stocks um, uh, and having a certain amount of uh, a limit on how much I invest as the cost basis, that doesn't happen too often. But uh, on occasion, I will have that situation. I had it with Qualcomm. I mean, I, I really lucked out with Qualcomm. I bought I bought 100 shares of Qualcomm in 1995 for uh, $55 a share, and after a number of splits, uh, I ended up with 1,600 shares. And so when it when it was reaching in the sixty and seventy dollar range, even for my portfolio, that was uh, 
a bit outsides. And so I, I have trimmed that back uh, from 1,600 shares to 1,000 shares, for example, because it was just too big. But uh, I don't have to do that too much. And I'm more inclined to let my winners ride and, and, and keep an eye on them. You don't, you don't turn a blind eye to them. But certainly, unless there's something that fundamentally has changed, I, I will generally let them ride because I don't have to do, I don't have too many Qualcomm outsized uh, positions, if you will. So, Steve, we're just about out of time. So let me finish up with a couple of my favorite questions here. What's your favorite? What's your favorite investment book? What's your favorite leisure book? Favorite investment book? I guess Graham and Dodd is still, <laughs> still, still the Bible, so to speak. I guess even with its its updated versions. Favorite book? I don't know that I have one favorite book. I what I do for leisure, totally outside of all this stuff, is read a lot of science fiction. There's one author that my daughter has turned me on to. His name is John Scalzi, uh, and, and he's a lot of fun. So I would go with the author rather than the one book, and I hope that addresses it. Yep, I can uh, I can link that via Amazon, not a problem. And um, final question, no matter our wealth, we need our health. What do you do to stay healthy mentally and physically? Well, let's talk about the physical. Uh, I work out six days out of seven for about an hour and a half uh, to two hours both weightlifting and uh, uh, getting on the bike aerobic. And mentally, I think uh, just all the reading and, and, and I, I, do, I do more reading and writing today with being involved in my investing than I did as a lawyer. And I think that keeps me mentally sharp because what I'm doing today, I'm, I'm using everything I learned over the last 45 to 50 years today. And my motto is, you got to learn something new every day. If you don't, then it's time to hang it up. Well, fair enough. I guess that will we can hang up the interview then on that on that <laughs> quote too. Steve, hopefully one of these days we'll see an article from you, but you know, if not, we'll just keep on uh, reading the great comments that you uh, that you help out with in in the articles. So, uh, any parting words? Uh, no, I, I, other than I really appreciate the opportunity to um, uh, share my thoughts uh, with you and with the community. And uh, I don't know whether I'm going to write an article or not. I think my problem is I'm too much of a perfectionist, and I'd probably spend too much time writing the article uh, and not never be satisfied with it, never submit it. But uh, no, thanks for the opportunity to share my thoughts, and, and I, I appreciate you reaching out to me. At, uh, and uh, good luck to everybody and, and to you and and uh, this series sounds like a lot of fun. Well, thank you. And, you know, the comment is basically the jury of your peers. So if you can handle a true jury, then I think you can handle the comments that come after any article you may write. Right. So, <laughs> uh, Steve, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. I want to thank Steve for being part of the show this week and last week. At the end of his interview this week, we saw a return of the great reminder, which is don't chase yield. It's a message that we've all heard over and over. It's a lesson that we all try and teach, as we have all been there. But for some reason, we all have this initial more is better mentality. There's also this idea, as a new investor, that more is some sort of free option that we're smarter than the rest of the market. And I don't really understand why it takes getting a slap on your own hand to understand the lesson, but everyone seems to do it. It's kind of a rite of passage, even though the message is out there in this podcast on Seeking Alpha and just about every other dividend growth investing website book. 
etc. So I'll say it one more time. Don't reach for yield. Make sure the company paying your dividend can afford to continue to pay your dividend. Check their cash flow. Check their debt. As we saw with the article of the week this week, remember the historic context for those things. And if things don't line up, then it's time to move on. With that as a segue, last, I want to take this time to announce the end of the Dividend Health Checkup podcast. We've got two more guests and four more episodes to go still. Dr. Dividend and I have loved being your host and putting this show together. We're very thankful for you, the listeners, as well as the guests, for taking the time. But unfortunately, it is time for us to move on. I think I can speak for both myself and Dr. Dividend when I say that we've enjoyed the project. The wealth of information in the investor community is amazing, and we're glad that we're able to bring it to you in the podcast format for a while. We'll both continue to be around Seeking Alpha, but unfortunately, for now, we need to move on to other projects. So for now, in the five episodes to go, until next week, happy investing. The conversations on this podcast are intended as entertainment and not intended to represent individual investment advice. The majority of contributors on this podcast are not licensed financial advisors, so please do your own research and do not buy or sell stocks based primarily on what you've heard today.